Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Let's try that again. Thanks, Linda, very much. Uh, Indeed. I'm not very well. So sorry I put my coat back on, but I'm positively frozen. Um, The trustees' elections are a week on Tuesday, and I'm not showing that video any more times, all right? (laughs) I'm absolutely done with it. So if you don't know when they are, then we just can't help you with that. A week Tuesday uh, ends the discussion. Week four, who do you think you are? You can catch up uh, online. If you've missed the previous three, we're making a big effort with the podcast. They're going on quickly and efficiently. We're altering the volume levels and all sorts, so find them there. And do you want to know some really exciting news? You'd have to proper respond, though, if I say it. You can't go, oh, yeah, whatever. You can actually listen to the podcast within church app now. You've got no idea what that means, have you, most of you? What is he talking about? Church app, I remember that. Someone mentioned that once somewhere. Uh, church app is the way uh, we keep uh, our church membership database and connect people across the church. If you're a church member and find yourself knowing nothing about that, then uh, uh, get that fixed. But if you just go onto the home screen of your own church app uh, login, then you can find all the podcasts listed there. So it's another easy way to, to find them uh, when you head off into Uh, the week. The big story is this for this series, is that our identity is something that we receive, something that's given to us, and nothing about our identity can we therefore achieve. Identity is received, not achieved. God is always there for the starting point. He is the one that uh, uh, sets the whole thing in motion. He is the one who defines who we are, what he says about us, and how he made us become the foundations, the twin pillars of our identity. So suddenly, theology, the study of God, which might seem rather dull and boring and of little connection with our ordinary lives, suddenly becomes incredibly relevant, very personal and applicable to uh, our moment-by-moment daily lives. Because I cannot understand who I am without understanding who God is. I cannot understand what I'm about unless I understand what God is about and how I fit into God's wider purpose. I'm made in his image. So week by week, as I've said, we'll start with God, who he is, what he's about, what he's like, and therefore help us to understand who we are, what we are or should be like, and the way we are called to live as a consequence. So here we go, week four, God is relationship. We are relational, or relational, depending on how you pronounce it. It's a weird turn of phrase, isn't it? God is relational. In fact, I'd even uh, be willing to admit that it's probably not even grammatically correct. 
It doesn't make any sense. It kind of brings together words that don't fit comfortably. And that's because I'm effectively trying to describe something that in our way of viewing the world is undescribable. So in order to try and explain something that is unexplainable, we might at times find ourselves with words and language that don't fit together in any way like the way perhaps we think they should. So let's um, get going and you'll see what I mean. Let's dig in a little bit. We're back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. We've been there before already and suddenly as we get going we see something rather strange. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. It's all about him. It begins with him. It's his story. He's the beginning and the end. And the language is very clear and the language is singular. How many gods do we have right there? One. Quite right. We are a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. We've always asserted, just like the people of Israel, that we stand in contrast to many other religions that would believe in many gods. So when Israel uh, journeyed through the Old Testament, they would regard themselves as different and distinct from all the other nations because unlike the other nations, they worshipped one God, the maker of heaven and earth, rather than the many gods that the other nations believed were around them that in fact were merely idols. So we've got one God. A few verses later, verse 26... It says, then God said, let me make man in my image. No, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let us. I thought there was only one of them. Well, there is. But the language here is plural. In fact more than two. So in English, we have singular and we have plural, and plural can be two or more. So uh, if I say, let me do something, I'm talking about myself. If I say, let us do something, it could be two of us, could be three of us, could be four of us. In, in Hebrew, they have uh, a singular one, then they have a word for two, and then they have uh, a linguistic style for more than two. What we have here is more than two. So we've got one God who's creating, and yet the language is, just a few verses later, let us, as in more than two, make mankind in our image. Is that unexplainable? Absolutely. Unexplainable. Would you expect things about God to be unexplainable to us? Yes, we would expect things about God to be unexplainable to us. For when we try and understand God... It's a little bit like asking a fly to repair a motherboard. Just the the contrast, the the difference, the the scale, the, the level of comprehension is just so, so vast. So we can't explain it or fully understand it, but we have one God. We're only in the first 20-odd verses of the Bible, and we're already up to our neck in it. We have one God, but at the same time, we have more than two people. We have at least three that seem to be synonymous with the one God. Not to get bogged down, let's fast forward a few thousand years. What's a few thousand years between friends? When we get into the New Testament, 
And there in the New Testament, it's not that God hasn't been active all through the Old Testament, but he, he becomes a fully or more fully revealed in the New Testament than he was in the Old. And think about the New Testament in this way for a moment, because it's helpful, I hope, and illuminating. What is the story that the New Testament tells? The story of God that the New Testament tells is firstly about the Father who sends His Son. For God so loved the world that He sent, He gave His one and only Son. John 3.16, probably the most famous verse, at least in the New Testament, may be eclipsed by the most famous verse in the whole of the Bible, which would be, for the purpose of the podcast, everybody's Leonardo. <laughs> Lord's my shepherd. The story of God unfolds, the Father sends his Son, and then as Jesus gets underway in his ministry, we see it referred to in this way. The story of the Son doing his Father's work. Jesus said, look, it's not me doing the stuff, but it's the Father doing, it's, it's the Father's work. And I, I'm simply doing what the, I see the Father doing. It's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Uh, and then we move towards the climax of the whole story, the cross, which is presented to us in terms of the Son surrendering to his Father's will. Yet, not my will but yours be done. That most famous moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is overwhelmed with the cross that's ahead of him and he's asking his Father if there be another way. And then we get the resurrection. That was a great idea, wasn't it? That was a good God day, deciding on the resurrection. Uh, and how's that portrayed? Did Jesus raise himself? No. It's about a father who raised his son, a father who exalts his son. God raised him from the dead. So we've got this story unfolding of a father and a son. But hovering in the background, as there's always been, of course, is someone else. Remembering, more than two, we understood from the very first chapter of Genesis. A third person now takes center stage. A father and son send their spirit. And so we celebrate Pentecost, the birth of the church, and the season that we're in uh, all the way up to uh, the present time. So Jesus explains who this spirit is. He's, he's, he's another one. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, uh, another one like me, another one to stand in our place, to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So when Jesus says, I'll come to you, he's saying that I'll come to you because my spirit will come to you. So he's making himself different, yet at the same time synonymous with the Holy Spirit. So is it one God or three? Well, suddenly as you look at the New Testament, it seems much more like three than it does one. But then you remember something that Jesus said. He said, well, don't get too caught up on it because I and the Father are one. What sort of oneness is that? Well, pretty close if you listen to Jesus. Remember when Philip, one of the disciples, questioned Jesus and Jesus, a little bit frustrated, a little bit uh, uh, exasperated perhaps. Don't, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So is it three or one? That kind of clears it up, doesn't it? Just to turn the screws on the whole thing even more, remember how John began his gospel, Christmas words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, and the Word was God. Oh my Word. (laughs) See what I did there? Oh my Word. Are you confused? Yeah, you should be. You can't understand what God, who God is, what his nature is. How, how can our minds conceive the magnitude of it? Is it one or is it three? The early church, not surprisingly, because Christians are good at finding things to argue and debate about, so not surprisingly, they argued and debated about it, and they decided you really needed to at least attempt to choose. Were you going to go for one or were you going to go for three? And it was paralyzing. It's like when you're driving along and your spouse goes left and the sat-nav says, right, choose. (laughs) And the early church just got locked into this inability to choose because they realized that every time they tried to choose, they simply divided against each other. So, choose. Is it one or is it three? Hands up for one. Okay, hands down. Hands up for three. Most of you haven't put your hands up at all. And maybe that's very wise. The mistake, and it's easy for me to say, with 2,000 years of hindsight, was to make people choose at all. Because truth is so often found, not at the either or, but in the paradox. And lots of our Christian faith is based on a paradox. Things that remain true even though from our perspective to our tiny minds, they appear to contradict each other. So when we think about Jesus, was Jesus truly man? Are you sure? Was he truly God? Are you sure? That's a paradox. And the moment you you push one of the truths at the expense of the other, you lose something. If Jesus was fully man, but somehow was less than God, how could he rescue me and stand in the gap? If Jesus was more God and not really man, how could he take my place and rescue me anyway? And the same was true of the Trinity. They lived with this anxiety, and as they argued trying to choose, the moment there was an emphasis in one direction, something else got lost. So people go, ah, it's one God. With absolute confidence, rightly so, because we do believe in one God, but in in so wanting to assert the unity of God in order to uh, uh, reassert that we were a one God, monotheistic, one God believing uh, people, something of the threeness of God obviously got lost or diminished. And then when other people came along and they started talking about the, the plurality of God, they said, whoa, 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 steady on a bit. If you start talking like that, we'll be like polytheist, polytheistic. It will become polytheistic in our faith. And suddenly we'll be like all the other nations with our belief in many gods. And so they battled it out. And in the end, very simplistically, they kind of agreed to disagree. Western theology heavily dominated by people like Augustine, ended up 
over, not overemphasize, I think it's not fair because it's impossible, isn't it? Uh, em- but put perhaps more of the emphasis on the, the oneness, the unity of God. Uh, Eastern theology, people like the Cappadocian Fathers and all those kind of guys, if you're interested in any of that stuff, uh, Eastern theology, they, they were much keener at thinking about the, the relationship within God, the Trinity, and, uh, and quite happy with a bit more uncomfortableness about God being three rather than one. Now, we're a product of our tradition. So we're part of a, a Western theological position, and therefore over the years, down through the centuries, we have emphasized our belief in the one God, and therefore, if we're not careful, lost something about what the Trinity might teach us, because we haven't been able to explain it, and we don't like things we can't explain, and we certainly don't talk much about things we don't understand, or at least not knowingly. And so, kind of, Trinity, if we're not careful, gets regulated to Sunday school when you go, oh yeah, got the Trinity, it's water, ice, and whatever the other one is, steam, fog, or mist, or something. Fire, sorted it, Trinity all done, tick. Let's move on to a a more complicated doctrine. And of course, the danger with that is that we've approached the Trinity in terms of thinking, do I understand it? Not really. Can I help myself understand it? Well, maybe a little bit. There might be some analogies that are a little bit helpful. But what I think we fail to do is to embrace the reality that at the center of the universe, the God that made us in his image and who created and even today sustains the whole universe is at his core a relational being, a, a person, and the language fails us, a people in community. At the heart of the universe, there is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the big question, perhaps, is not can I understand it, because manifestly I can't, as I've made plain this morning. The bigger question might be, how does it inform who I am, and therefore how I should live? How does it illuminate what it means to be human, and to help me understand my purpose? How does the Trinity shape our identity? Well, firstly, we were made for that family, not just any family. You see, at the heart of the universe is the deepest, most secure, most satisfying, most fulfilling, utterly loving relationship within God himself. It's the perfect family. It's what all our hearts yearn for. It's the discovery in that network of relationships. It's the discovery of what we've all lost. And you and I are invited into that family. So we're not too far away now from where we were a fortnight ago when we talked about God the Father adopting us as sons and daughters into his family. There's some really important things about that, this series in that um, 
message from a couple of weeks ago. Grab hold of that if you missed it. A father adopts a son, but the whole family is involved. And from a Trinitarian perspective, looking at the whole thing from the the filter, the gaze of, of thinking about God being a Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit God, we can see that we are invited not just into a Father, Son relationship, but we've been invited into a whole family. Theologians talk about an open Trinity because the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is open to you. Huh? That's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah? Father, Son, Spirit. Put your name next. Father, Son, Spirit, Bob, George, Sarah, whatever your name is. Open, invited into that relationship which in itself says something about our identity and our value and our worth. But we're not going to repeat all the stuff that we said two two weeks ago. But it is a reminder. It is a reminder of how deeply we were created to yearn for relationship. Because we were created out of that relationship and we were created for that relationship. And if we do not have that relationship, we will naturally look for it somewhere else. And if we look for what only God can provide in someone else or in something else, we will put a weight on that someone or on that something that will be heavier than it was ever made or will ever be able to bear. It's kind of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Can you remember the story? She'd had six, was it six husbands and she was uh, living with a seventh man or maybe five husbands are living with a sixth, it doesn't really matter. But what Jesus was saying to her effectively is you've looked in, in another human being what you will only ever be able to find in God and therefore your search will go on and go on and go on and go on. We were made for that Family, this is eternal life, said Jesus, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. For this reason, Jesus came. And if you ever had a picture of what happened on the cross, it was not just that Jesus' arms were ripped open wide, but the Trinity itself was ripped open wide to invite you in. There was a break in that relationship that had always existed and the break was to make room for you. That's gospel right there, to make room for you. You were made for that family. It all starts here. The Father who loves you, the Son who gave himself for you, the Spirit that cleanses and renews you. Do you know him? Do you know him? Secondly, that has human implications, obviously. We were made for that family, but the Trinity, let us make mankind in our image, reminds us that we're made for family relationships. It's, it's how we've been wired. It, it's part of our DNA. Like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this endless, self-giving, always loving, mutual relationship. If we are made in His image, then similarly, we are designed for those kind of interdependent relationships. Now, obviously that gets worked out in all kinds of different ways. Jesus himself was a single man and he created a family around him that was not a nuclear family and neither was his blood family. 
So think about the principle for a moment, and let's try not to lock it into uh, our particular uh, context or or put it in our nuclear family kind of model uh, either. If relationship is at the heart of the universe, so the relationship came first. Relationship became, um, uh, came before, oh, you know when your head's fuzzy? No perceptible difference, Simon, you're always like this. You know? <laughs> Uh, if you think about God, then, then the relationship that was within God, uh, that came first. Before God did anything, that relationship already existed. Are you with me? So, 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 so priority-wise, the relationship is, was, and always will be first. Work, activity, success, doing something, fruitfulness, all came out of that relationship, but the relationship was there first. So if relationship is at the heart of who God is and the way that he created us also, then relationships should have a priority that trumps everything else. For relationship comes before activity, it becomes before work, it becomes before achievement and whatever else we might add. In our culture, we're often tempted to think that I will achieve something, I will do a job, I will have a task, I will accept an appointment, I will give myself to whatever that is, and, and our relationships are a, a periphery. They're, they're on the peripheral of the main thing that I am. So I am whatever that might be, and we describe ourselves in terms of what we do quicker than maybe the way we define ourselves in terms of who we are i.e. by virtue of our uh, relationships. And we kind, of, we kind of know that's wrong. We kind of know that's not the way it should be. And maybe in our hearts we believe it's different and we want it to be different. But how many times have we sacrificed relationship for task? How many times have we sacrificed a digging in with a particular relationship because of another activity? How many times have we let something relationally slip because we've been busy grabbing hold of something else? I think we can all think of examples where that's been true in our experience. Our relationships become something at worst to occupy our free time and at best something that we'll invest in once some other things are suitably invested in. Trouble is, naturally... People begin to feel used and relationships then become shallow, they become tenuous, they become fleeting and uh, the whole fabric of relationships falls apart which is what we're uh, witnessing all around us in our culture. The doctrine of the Trinity, the theology of God, understanding who God is reminds us that our relationships are far more important than our careers, our holidays, our salaries, our assets, our love of sport, whatever it might be. The relationship was there first in God, and he's created us in his image. And when I try and forge my identity independent of my relationships, I will never succeed, because that is to go against the very DNA that's within our bones and within the way God has made us to be. 
And it's why, frankly, when relationships fail, the impact on us is massive, massive, massive. Everyone limps away from broken relationships. Even the people that say, it serves them right, I'm never going to speak to them again. You limp away. Because something in your heart, at that moment, is effectively saying, the relationship doesn't matter very much to me anymore. Which effectively is a way of saying, relationships are not my primary thing in this area of my life. Which effectively is saying, I don't want that part of me to be in God's image anymore. Is that going to go well for us? No. No, it's a, it's a, it's a limp. It's a, it's a hardness. It's why it hurts so much. And when we become hurt and fiercely independent, we lose something about our identity as human beings. Let's develop that just a little bit further. You see, thirdly, we're made for partnership. Partnership. The Trinity is a reminder that the priority is partnership, not individualism. Our culture champions success, particularly the greater success of the individual who did it themselves. I guess we could, um, we could quote lots of different examples. Ellen MacArthur is one example. She sailed around the world single-handedly when she was about six years of age, didn't she? Maybe she was seven or eight. And, 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 and rightly so. Don't misunderstand me. That's some mega achievement, isn't it? I'm not kind of going, oh yeah, anyone could have done that. That's, that's like, it's like almost mind-blowing achievement. But the thing that most impresses us is she did it by herself. There's something about our humanness that, that rises up to the power of our individual effort. You with me? So the best films are the one when single-handedly someone saves the entire world all by themselves. Why does that rise up in us with a sense of, you know, yes? Is it the ugliness in us, the fallenness in us, that champions the power of independence? I'll do it myself. And we all learn to say that when we're two or three. Mine, self, no, are our earliest words that assert our independence. I did it myself against all the odds without any help. What will a child do very early on when they begin to learn something? They'll push the parent's hand away. I might be two, but I'll cross the A12 by myself. I can do it. Because there's something deep inside us, and I think it's a broken bit of us, if I'm honest. Something deep inside us that wants to prove that we can do it. And that flows against the way that we have been made. Everything about God is partnership. Recognizing that the Father could not have saved the world by himself. And neither could have the Son or the Holy Spirit. We needed all three to be at work in partnership. There's those lovely verses that Paul quotes. I can't think of what the reference is just at the minute. Uh, where, where, where it talks about all three members of the Trinity being involved in the cross. It's just a reminder that, that God the Father was there and, and the Spirit was there. This, is not, this was not some solo venture of Jesus. Even there was a break in the Trinity. Somehow we needed all three. All three were, 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 were partaking in what was going on. Individualism stands so often opposed to God's purpose in our lives. And we probably all agree. Individualism, hmm, that's nasty. Don't like that. That's a bit negative. But if we alter the language and bring it closer to home and use that language of independence, ooh, I quite like independence. I, I want to be independent, don't you? I think you do. I think you do. Where am I seeking to be independent 
where God's way is partnership. Losing our independence is a huge loss. Absolutely. Difficult struggle for whatever reason, whenever it comes. To lose our independence is a massive blow. But how much more of a blow has it become in our highly individualized society where we are no longer interdependent on one another in a way we were 80, 100, 100 plus years ago with all of our modern gadgetry and our economic success and so on, we have become completely independent units so that we don't have to rely on anybody else. In fact, sometimes you say, I hate having to rely on somebody. Come on, you all know what I'm talking about. We hate having to rely on somebody. That's against our God-given nature. We were made to rely on one another. When I say I'm not going to ask for help, anyone ever thought, I'm not asking for help? Oh, you haven't done. That's a terrible thing, that is. Not asking for help? How could you? But it is a terrible thing if we're honest. If I don't ask for help, I'm basically saying the way God's made me isn't the right way, so I'm going to do it by myself. I'm going to be independent even when he says not to. That's the first thing that's wrong with it. Second thing that's wrong with it, if I don't ask you to help me, then I will not get the blessing that God has for me. That's the second thing that's wrong with it. The third thing that's wrong with it, if I don't ask you to help me, then you will be denied your opportunity to be human, which is to help someone else, to be in partnership with someone else, which is exactly the way God made you too. So it's wrong on all levels when we go, I'm not asking for help. Do you need any help? Nope. Nope. And we're fiercely independent, aren't we? Fiercely independent. And it smacks against our identity. The way God has made us to be. Spirit of individualism is strong and alive. So strong you can go to a town where you've never been. You can be in a street going, you haven't got a clue where. Trying to find something that you've never in your life seen before but you'd rather not ask anyone for help because I want to do it myself. I heard someone say not long ago, uh, why didn't you use a sat-nav? Well, I didn't want her to think I couldn't do it by myself. (laughs) There's something about our ingrained independence that smacks against the way God's made us to be. We fall for the lie of self-sufficiency. And it works at every level. It works at the individual level. Tragically, it's worked at nuclear family level. The nuclear family, you could argue, has been an experiment over the last hundred years or so since the Industrial Revolution when suddenly economically it became possible. You could argue that it's an experiment that's gone terribly wrong because they're falling apart left, right and centre. Basically what we've said is that that if we've got a a family, there's a marriage and there's a couple of kids and now that, that gets redefined in all kinds of other ways, but even laying all that aside, basically we said we're going to close the front door and we can do it by ourselves. We can do it all by ourselves. We don't need anybody else. If you've got a grandparent to call on once in a while to do a bit of babysitting, that's a win, isn't it? Yeah? Hands up for all those who've got grandparents who live too far away to babysit. It's a tougher deal, isn't it? That's a win. But basically, we'll do it by ourselves. And actually, families have crumbled left, right, and centre under that pressure, haven't they? Actually, that's too great a pressure. Whereas it takes a village to raise a child, gone. You say, well, we don't have villages. Yeah, but we have streets and we have communities. They're the same old thing. Uh, we, we've got, we can do it by ourselves. And we, we've striven for some independence that I think we were never intended to have. We absolutely need other people to help us. Honestly, my kids absolutely need other mums and dads to help them. They're stuffed if they've just got us. If they can only see our marriage, 
and cannot see closely someone else's marriage and have any measure as to whether it's good, bad, what's good, what, any gauge, any measure, any window, then they're in trouble. If we are the only point of reference for faith around the home, they're in trouble. And so on and so forth. We need each other. And around the world, people have always lived in extended families. And as I said, the nuclear family is a relatively recent experiment and it hasn't gone too well for us. And maybe this is why. Because we were never made to be independent. We were never made to do it on our own. The God in heaven has never modeled that to us and never suggested it to us either. Maybe just as an aside, perhaps it's useful to to think about how this plays out. You see, if you emphasize one God, then one God becomes uh, a defense, a foundation, a mantra for one king or one dictator or one priest or to put it in our vernacular, one minister. And, and, and so often all of those things have led to awful distortions, both in nation, national life and in church structures and so on. But what if God isn't one? What if God is three? What if you can't just say God is one without having to remember that God is three? Does that not bring a different perspective, a different balance, a, a different insight? In fact, we live in interesting times, don't we, where, where recently all kinds of different business models have, obs- have, have emerged, where collaboration has been the mantra in a way that it didn't used to be. So uh, eBay and Skype are obvious examples of where power gets dispersed throughout the organization, and they've become incredibly successful. Facebook, arguably, is another one too. Wikipedia is certainly another one. We used to have those books on the shelf at home, the children's Britannica Encyclopedia. Who had those? Twenty. I remember opening up on Christmas Day going, <laughs> my mum and dad listened to the podcast. Going, great, absolutely, what a fantastic gift of knowledge into our home. But now you don't have any of that stuff because Wikipedia exists and Wikipedia is a collaboration. Everyone goes, it'll never work. It'll never work. People will just make right all kinds. Of, now, occasionally it doesn't work, but the community itself polices it. It's, a, it's an incredible story, really which is a reminder that deep within our DNA, that collaboration, that partnership is something that's really powerful. Uh, I'm not sure much about the history of Snapchat, but was it last week or the week before Snapchat got sold for something? A few quid anyway. And that's just a photo that disappears in 10 seconds, max. Honestly, we all could have made that up. Uh, uh, Why? Because somehow there was the collaboration, that sense of shared ownership and all, all the rest of it. Anyway, the point is, why are these things flourishing in that way? It seems really mad. There are all kinds of reasons why they might be flourishing. But one of them might be, is that it captures something of the way we were made. Because we were made to give freely. Instead of getting and grabbing, our DNA is about releasing and giving. If you think about it for a moment, the Trinity is an amazing example of laying each other aside for for, for the other. The Son lays himself aside for the Father. It's not the only example. We see Jesus talking about laying himself aside for the Holy Spirit to come. He says, I'm going to go now. I've kind of done my bit, and I'm going to make way for uh, the Spirit to come in my place. And just to complete the circle, the Father says, fair play, I'm going to raise Jesus up because he lowered himself down to uh, the depths. And so what do we get? We get this example of continuous selfless living, continuous self-giving, and we find our true selves when we give of ourselves, don't we? Isn't that another paradox? That we find ourselves when we lose ourselves? That when we lay our lives down, somehow they get lifted up? 
that we could gain the whole world and lose even our soul. So you've got all those things bubbling away, and there even now at the center of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving themselves and laying themselves down one for another, which suddenly it then makes perfect sense when we read, submit yourself to one another. <laughs> not doing that. No way! I'm not submitting myself to anybody. Well, there's a God in heaven who submits himself every moment to one another. Wow. There's a God in heaven. There's a Father in heaven who never says, hey, I'm, in, I'm the big man around here. Jesus who died and rose again doesn't go, hey, I'm the big cheese here. Holy Spirit. They give of, lay themselves down for one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another as a way of saying that you understand the way God is, how he works, who he is, his DNA, what makes him who he is. Submit because that's the God that we know and we worship. When we're selfish, self-obsessed, self-absorbed, we're rejecting our true selves in favor of a warped and broken alternative. Let's speed things up. So, fifthly, we were made for, sorry, we were made to welcome others in. Remember that open trinity we talked about? Now, this is a tricky one because we've all been in groups, in situations when we've become very possessive and thought, I don't want anyone else to join. I don't, I don't want anyone else to join us because this is good. What we've got is good. If someone else joins, they're going to mess it up. If someone else joins, they won't get it quite the way that we get it. If someone else joins, oh, we won't be able to do that and say this and blah, 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 blah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had lived together for eternity, quite happily. If anyone could have said, hey, if we let them join, they'll mess it up. I think it was them. They, above all else, could have defended the truth that they were stuck in their ways. That they, It wouldn't be the same if some snotty little human got involved. It's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? You know? We all know that we like our space, don't we? We think, I'm not letting anyone... We're talking about the heart of the universe. The space has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Into that space you've been invited. Therefore, be very careful when you're thinking to yourself, do you know what? I'm not going to let them in. Shh, don't tell them. Because it flows against the very way God has made us to be. And I guess, yeah, people will mess it up. People will make it feel different. It'll change. No doubt Father, Son, and Holy Spirit feel a bit crowded with all these Christians joining in now. How many Christians are there in the world? Two billion or something. There's only three of us. I loved it when it was just three of us. We could have a good old chat. And now there's that whole church all over the world that keeps bickering and shouting in our face. It's really noisy now, isn't it, Father? Yes, it is, Jesus. The, um, the chat comes out on film, doesn't it, in a few weeks' time. Is that right? I don't know anything about the film. I'm not in any way saying it's a good film or it's a good whatever. I've read The Shack, so I know about that. People get all uptight about The Shack because they say it doesn't, um, it's not accurate doctrinally and all of that stuff. No, it isn't. How can it be accurate doctrinally? How can you have a book that describes God? What it does do is emphasize something about the dynamic of relationship that could exist between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For that reason, I think it's worth reading because it opens up your eyes to a doctrine of God that we've pushed to one side because we don't really know what to do with it. Because we can't understand it. And because we can't understand it, we don't want to talk about it. There we go. That's my sales pitch on that. <laughs> sales of tickets for the shack rocket. After young Baptist preacher. <clears throat> that wasn't funny. That was just factual. 
Let's bring all this into land before we all run out of steam. Strip it all away for a moment. What, what really matters most in life? You remember that day when there was a horrific attack on the Twin Towers? And over the weeks that followed, stories came out of what was happening inside those towers as they tragically burnt to the ground. And it, and it seems like, by all accounts, people were all doing the same thing. As people realized that they couldn't escape death that day, they all found themselves with a common objective. It seems that parents suddenly became desperate to get in touch with children. And children with parents and friends and neighbors and colleagues desperate to get in touch with one another. And by all accounts, it seems that they just wanted to say one thing. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? People from all kinds of different backgrounds, people with all kinds of different life experiences, people rich and poor, people who'd been happy and sad, people who'd had a, a, a blissful life and a tragic life up until that point. Suddenly, they, they all wanted to say the same thing to someone. I love you. I love you. I love you. Why? Why? Because something way deep inside about what it means to be human, something way deep down in the way that God has made us, is that we were built, made, created, before anything else, to know and to be known. That's what it is to be human. Human beings, not human doings. Jesus said, I want you to be with me, and then later he sent them out. As we think about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what is the Spirit of God saying to you this morning? Where is God asking you to invest? Is there a relationship that suddenly this morning you're thinking, do you know, I, I've been given that relationship and it really matters to me. Why am I not investing more? Why am I allowing the doing to get in the way of that which God has given me? Maybe you're thinking about where you've been hurt. Relationships can be very painful. And because you've been hurt, you've pulled away and you're striking out with a bit of independence. And God just wants to soften your heart and call you back. And maybe in that independence of thinking, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making the first move with anybody anymore. They can come to me. That's independence. That's a stubbornness. Maybe God's whispering in your heart, softening your heart. Where's the Spirit at work? As we think about a God that continually gave himself to himself. Words don't work, do they? But you know what I mean. Let's be quiet for a moment. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thank you for reminding us that this relationship is the beginning of everything. Nothing makes sense without it, and nothing makes sense outside of it. We were made to be in relationship with you. And we're sorry for when we've turned our Christian lives into a series of activities, We've turned being a Christian into doing good things. When our Christianity has become about doing certain acts, reading certain books, having particular quiet times, attending certain services. All of those good things. But in the activity, we've missed the relationship. And we want to come back and say it's all about you, Jesus. Knowing you and being known by you. And from that place of welcome into family, we reassess our willingness to build relationships with those around. We reassess our willingness to invite others into relationship with us, to invite others into our missional community, to invite others into our small group, 
to invite others into our book club, to invite others to play squash, football, sport, watch film with us, to invite neighbours and work colleagues. Thank you that you invited us in. Help us to think who we need to invite in. And we're all too aware how easy it is for us to cling to things that are here for a moment, things that come and go. And when life shakes us and circumstances throw us into turmoil, the things that matter most rise to the surface. Help us to invest wisely, we pray. From a sense of deep assurance, absolute confidence, that though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, our God is with us. He is in us and we are in him. And nothing can shake us out of his hands. Thank you, Lord.